to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to be reading Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word to our hearts, not just our minds, to worship him this morning over it. Let's pray. It's my prayer, Father. That by your grace and your mercy, you have led us into adoration already, singing from our hearts. Oh, I pray that that spirit of worship remain as we delve into and hover over and hear your holy word. We thank you for the presence of the Spirit so that your Son will be glorified in our midst. In his precious name I ask it. Amen. Okay, so what I want to do this morning is focus on just one clause. Now, don't panic. It's not what I'm going to be doing as we make our way through the entire book of Hebrews week after week. So, usually paragraph at a time, looking at the whole. But the opening of Hebrews, as we've seen over the last few weeks, is just amazingly chock full. And so that clause I want to look at is right there in the middle of verse 3. After making purification for sins. That's huge. It's massive. It is central to everything. It is at the core and the essence of what Christianity is. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
Who? The one we've been seeing over the last few weeks. The creator of the universe. The second person of the Holy Trinity who in the womb of Mary became a human being in order to grow up and to live perfectly and to suffer and to die. That human soul and body. And then on the third day was raised from the dead for six weeks, hung out with his friends, and they touched him. And he ate fish, and then he ascended. And since then, in this very moment, the Lord Jesus in his humanity, his transformed body, immortal human body is seated at the right hand of God. Not here. But that same person, as we saw last week, is here right now in His divine nature, very present by the Holy Spirit. As we saw in the first Two verses, He is the heir, He is the creator of the universe, He's the exact imprint of God's very nature. He is the glory of God, shining forth out into creation in His humanity. And now, the clause. Notice first within that clause, the phrase... For sins. Sin is a reality. It's the power that, that moves our hearts and our wills. It has a grip on every human being, as Paul proclaimed in Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Father Adam, and so death spread to all men and women. Because all sinned. Sin is not just what we do. It's our nature. Born with. Remember Ephesians 2? Christian. You weren't always a Christian. You were dead. In your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, you're carrying out the desires of the body, and you were by nature children of God's wrath. At the very core of our being, every one of us has profaned the glory of God. We are those people of Romans 1 who have exchanged the glory of the only immortal God for images. We are Romans 3.23 for all, all, every Jew and every Gentile. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's why hearing the message of what happened in redemptive history and in human history in the first century about Jesus. That's why it's called the Gospel. It's the good news because that message at its core is this. There is a guilt 
meaning, I don't mean what you feel, judiciously, before the law court of God, there is a guilt remover. So anybody who ever tries to make themselves feel good by avoiding the reality of our nature, sin, you short-circuit the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel and its application is for people who come and awaken to how bad they really are front of God and feel it and then by God's grace they do the only sane thing they admit it God I am guilty and God's answer back is the gospel I've made provision for you Having made purification for sins, he sat down. Flip over one page and see what the Hebrew writer says here in chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. In other words, why? Why should, why should our sin concern us? What's so bad and dangerous about it? Because it has consequences. And the consequences of our sins and our sinfulness is God. It is God's holiness and justice expressed in holy wrath. Start with verse 16, chapter 3. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? That word provoked means in the Greek angry. With whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? The anger of God is perfect and holy and righteous altogether. We will not understand the love of God in Christ until we understand the righteous anger of God toward us sinners. That's why after laying out the gospel of justification by faith through Romans chapter 1 through 4, Paul says this in chapter 5 verse 9. Hear it. Since Therefore, we who believe, we who are Christians, since we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from God. 
from the wrath of God. That's what He's saving us from. The wrath of God toward us sinners. He, he, he writes a letter to these brand new Christians. Eight months before this, they never heard the gospel of Jesus. About six months before, they did. And Jesus grabbed those who were His at that point in the city of Thessalonica. And Paul writes them six months later in 1 Thessalonians 1, 8-9. And they already are supposed to know this because it's foundational. You, Thessalonians, turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath which is to come. The cross of Jesus is the outgrowth of the wrath of God against sinners. In other words, the perfect, holy, righteous, only God has appropriate judicial sinless anger It's sin. And that perfect wrath and anger is what put His Son through suffering and slaughter on the cross. The cross is the expression of two things. A just anger and an unimaginable, merciful love toward many sinners. It's a just anger. That's what the word propitiation means in the New Testament. In Romans 3, He put forth His Son as a propitiation by His blood. He meaning Jesus in the substitution absorbed the anger, the wrath of God against everyone whom He will save. And thus God was propitiated. And it's His love, first His love for His glory. Thus, as He upholds His holiness, His justice, His glory in the cross of Christ, that love for those sinners whom he died for. Back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Hear it. After making purification for sins. What a wonderful word. You know the word, you read your Old Testament in particular. You know the tabernacle and the sacrificial systems and clean and unclean and you can't come before His presence unclean. You've got to be purified, cleansed. This He cleansed sins. The Gospel is in that Word. 
purification. But now notice what the writer does here. Look at his sentence. First he says, after making purification. That's, that's one word in the Greek. It's a participle. It's a good translation to put the word after because it's a temporal participle. And he means this happened first. Then he sat down in his ascension at the right hand of God. Meaning that purification of sins is done. Finished. Completely. Long before you were ever born. Flip over to chapter 10, verse 10 for a moment. Listen to how he says it there. And by that, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So you got to hear it. Right now, the resurrected Lord Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And that enthronement, as we saw last week, is God's honoring His tribute to Jesus, particularly to the work that He accomplished on the cross. Where He cleansed away all sins for us believers. It's finished. It's never to be repeated. It was done 2,000 years ago. And what that means, and you got to hear it, if you are born again, if you are a child of God, when you sin next week, there is no need for another atoning sacrifice to cleanse away your sin. It was done before he sat down. It was done once and for all. Now, I'm going to be very clear. You'll have to know and search your own heart, but what I'm going to say right here, I'm saying only at this moment to those who are actually Christians. Only to those who have been born again, that you are objectively in Christ. Here it is. Every sin you will ever commit up until your dying day and on your dying bed, it has already been cleansed. Wiped away by Jesus. He has made purification 
for your sins on the cross. This is an awesome gospel. And that gospel is wide open to abuses. And people twisting it. Paul himself had to deal with that in his own day. They say about me, Paul. Well, Paul teaches, let us just sin as much as we can now so that the grace of God would abound. And he says, their condemnation is just. You know, it's open for abuses, but it did not in any way cause Paul to deny the truth of it. He was willing to risk it. Because it is the gospel. Because it is the truth. And the writer to the Hebrews is also willing to risk it. Jesus made purification for sins. It's finished. This cleansing of sin by the Lord Jesus Christ once for all in the book of Hebrews, and we'll slowly be moving through it, it is not a peripheral issue to this sermon, which it probably was originally, to this letter. Just give me a taste. Watch what he says in chapter 7 of Hebrews. Did I say Romans? Good. I hope not. Chapter 7, verse 26, 27, he writes, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily since He did this once for all when He offered up Himself. Or chapter 9, He entered once for all into the holy place not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Or He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. So what I want to do with the rest of our time is direct our minds, direct, and this is, the, this is why the mind part's important, direct our hearts to the contemplation of what Jesus really accomplished on the cross. Let me start it this way. If you are in Christ, if you have been united to Jesus Christ, He wants you to know something. And that is this. When He went to the cross, when the Father sent Him to the cross, 
He went there consciously, intentionally, to die and cleanse you. You in particular, you with the name you have, you with the parents you had, you in the time you were born, you in every experience you had, you in your DNA, you particularly he went to remove the wrath of God for. In other words, Jesus is a real Savior. Not a hypothetical one. He's a real Savior, not merely a potential Savior. He did not die so that maybe perchance somewhere down the line all the synapses in your body and your chemistry and your brain and your, your soul will one day get yourself to believe in Jesus and thus maybe get saved. That's not. He went there, Christian, in order to save you. He planned you in particular. And every person for whom Jesus went to the cross, every one of them, will be saved. He didn't go to the cross for every person. Remember what he said in Mark 10.45? I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Now don't misread into what I just said. So let me say this. Having said that, this does not mean at all that Jesus' substitutionary death was not sufficient to save every human being who ever came into existence. It's more than enough, the eternal God descending the eternal staircase and becoming one of us itself, much less substitutionary death. It's more than sufficient. And it's also, in one sense, available. It is true. As we sinners on earth, all around the earth, throughout the centuries, preach to them. And as they hear the gospel, it is absolutely true. So the availability of the offer is there. And that is, if you will believe, turn, receive Him, you will be saved. Every person will, and that is absolutely true. And so go tell it on the mountain over the hills and far away. 
That's what the church is called to do. Okay, but having said that, if you read into those words, He made purification for sins. Done. And sat down. It, it just simply does not make sense if you apply that purification to every human being who has ever lived. Or they would all be saved. There's no guilt. Sin, guilt, has not been put away for everyone. There is not an eternal redemption for everyone. Purification of sins has not been finished once for all. For everyone. If you say that Christ died on the cross for the purification for sins for every human being that would ever exist in the same way, then you have to define the nature of the atonement different than you would if you, if you believed that Christ purified the sins of those and all those who would actually believe in Him. If Christ died for everybody in the same way, then you have to believe that Jesus' death did not actually save anybody. It only made all people savable. It did not remove God's punitive wrath from anyone. But instead, it created a place where people could come and they could find mercy from God's wrath if somehow they could accomplish their own new birth. If they could bring themselves from spiritual death to spiritual life. If they could do all of that without God interfering by effectually calling them to faith. By the life-changing work of the Spirit. If you believe that Christ died for all people in the same way, then the benefits of the cross cannot include the mercy by which any of us are brought out of darkness into light. The mercy by which any of us are brought to saving faith. Because if you did, and you say, yes, Jesus purchased that, then every human being, if it applies to them all, they will all be saved. And those who teach that, even as professing Christians, are utterly wrong. There are real creatures who will suffer real wrath in the end. But if the mercy by which we are brought to faith is not part of what Jesus purchased for us on the cross, then we are then now left to ourselves 
to bring ourselves out of our own darkness and bondage to sin and blindness of heart and hatred towards God. Change yourself and thus be saved would be the message. And people and many genuine born-again brothers and sisters in Jesus, essentially that's what they teach. And you're going to be with them in heaven. But people who do teach that, they limit the atonement. They limit the work of Christ in what He accomplished because they deny that Jesus' death accomplished for us what we all so desperately need, and that's salvation from our own deadness to God, our own hardness of heart, our own blindness to see and thus be saved. See, for those for whom Christ died, they're not left in that state that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 3. I think it's 3, not 4. For the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Yeah, can't see it. But he goes on to say, in verse 6, two verses later, about Christians. The God who created the universe and said, let there be light. He is the one who has shown, that has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Why? Why didn't you do it for them? Well, he did it for, if it's you, because Jesus went to the cross and he purchased that light switch being turned on. In order for any of us to say that Christ died for all people in the same way, we must limit the atonement to some powerless opportunity for people to save themselves from spiritual death. In order to believe. What I'm simply, simply saying is this, that in the cross, God has in view the actual salvation of every one of His chosen people. Hear it. You'll sing it more heartfelt. You're meant to. When Christ died for the elect, he did not just create an opportunity for us to save ourselves, but He really purchased us, all of us. And He purchased everything that we needed in order to get saved, including the grace of new birth, which produces what we so desperately need. For by grace have you been saved, believer. And that's not of yourself. You've been saved through faith, and both are not of yourself. 
but a gift from God so that no one should boast. We are saved by Christ alone. That's what that means. Not by Christ plus my autonomous work of faith. Oh, dear believer in Jesus, Christ made purification for your sins long before you were ever conceived within the womb of your mother. It was done for you. Your sins were propitiated in the death of Christ. And if you say, no, 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 but only potentially now, if perchance I may add to the cross by bringing myself to faith, then I'd be saved. Well, if you say that, what you're saying is, then the wrath of God has not been removed before Jesus sat down wasn't removed until I did the work. Paul's way of saying it constantly is, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Salvation works this way in order that you will not boast, but only boast in the Lord. Or in other words, he's saying, don't take credit for the purification of your sins because you pulled the final lever. Even if God did 99.9%, and who saved, and who will bear the judgment of the sins forever, is really ultimately on that one, that point zero zero nine. But if you pulled it, you, and Jesus didn't buy that, you have something to boast about. L listen to the words of our Lord Jesus, John 10, verse 15 to 16. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own they know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep and the goats. He doesn't. You know, you know your Bible, you know. He said, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep down the road 2,000 years later in Torrance, California. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. Now, if you read it carefully, notice <laughs> being a sheep 
is what enables one to finally hear and listen. To become a believer. It's not the other way around. L listen to the clarity of the, the Apostle Paul on the intention of Christ in his atoning death. He says it this way in Ephesians 5. Hear him. Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. Right there, Paul said that when Jesus went to the cross, that the intended beneficiaries of the death of Christ is the church, which, is, which means His people. There were His people that He's coming to get. But not only that, also his intention in the cross was the effect that would bring about in them all sanctification throughout their lives. And not only that, to present to himself all of them in the final glorification. As he said, and as we heard read this morning, he will lose None of them, for He died for them. That's why He won't lose them. Or see where Paul is crystal clear on this in Romans 8, if you'll turn there for a moment, or read slowly. And as I read, worship. But worship by hearing the depth of the cross in this passage. Start with verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. He did. I'm telling, and He went to the cross to, to purchase that to, to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. How many of the predestined are called? The text says, it's clear, the predestined. That means all of them. And all of them are called. And so then He calls them. Now watch. And those whom He called, He also justified. How many of those whom God calls are justified? All of them. 
But Paul's already made clear in this very letter of Romans, crystal clear, no one is justified apart from faith. Now, he doesn't use faith here. But if all are called are justified, that means if you're called, definitionally means you come to faith to be justified. And those whom he justified, Here's the future still. In the resurrection, you've got to go on, believer. Persevere to the end. Oh, by the way, Jesus purchased that for you. Watch this. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. In the resurrection. Okay, we're not done. Listen, Paul's not done. Listen to him now. What then shall we say to these things? Okay, how shall we respond to what we just heard? Here, here's Paul's answer. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's rhetorical. No one. Now, here it is. Here's the cross. Listen to it. This is why. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up on the cross for us believers, for us all. Christians. Here it is. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He said, okay, what's the rest of the chapter going to say? Hell, high water, pain, tragedy, sword, spirit, life, death. Nothing shall be able to separate you from God's love for you in Jesus Christ. Why? Because He went to the cross. He bought it. All of it. Oh, it's what He wants us to. That's why he says what he says next. Who should bring any charge against God's elect? No one. It's God who justifies. Paul bases the very certainty of our future inheritance of your sanctification, believer, of your persevering to the end. He bases it on, not on your autonomous self-will. You have to use your will, and He will be working in you to will and work according to His good pleasure. He will be doing that, but there's something underneath why that's going to happen. He bases it on the cross of Christ. He says, God will most certainly give you all things to make it to the end. You will never be cut off, believer. Why? Because God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Think about it. If Christ is given for those who do not or will not, in fact, receive all things, ultimate salvation, but 
somehow will end up being lost? If that's true, and you're a thinking person, and you read the Bible very carefully, what we just read here in Romans 8, Paul's argument totally collapses. He's wrong. Doesn't stand. Doesn't work. More importantly, your assurance of your salvation would collapse. If God gave his son for those who in the end will be lost, then Paul cannot say that Jesus' death actually guarantees the all things for those for whom he died. But this is what he clearly says. If Christ died for you, then he most certainly will get you to glorification. Why? Because Christ died specifically for everybody who would ever be finally saved. Not for those who won't. Christ made purification. He cleansed all of your sin, believer. And he removed God's just anger against you so that he could turn now and come to you. And we all have our own testimonies to one degree or another. Some are stark, some are, I've loved Jesus since I was seven. But so that God, whom you were born as a child of his wrath, he could come because the wrath had already been removed and cause you to be born again in order that you would see and love His Son and thus be justified and on the process of sanctification and will finally be glorified. Christ purchased forgiveness of all your sins and He purchased your faith which is given to you as a gift which itself receives the forgiveness. Two more short little texts. The Hebrew writer says in chapter 9, verse 27 to 28, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, listen to it, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, not all, many, palon, many, he will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for them. The many. And then he tells us, how do you, who are they? They're known by their faith. Another way of, for him to say that is, they are those who are known by eagerly waiting for Jesus. 
In chapter 10, verse 14, he says this. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. Who? Those who are being sanctified. Now, the tenses of the Greek verbs are really important in that sentence. The first, he has perfected, is a perfect tense verb in the Greek. It's a past tense. It happened past here. And then the, the effect and ramifications of the perfect, which we don't have in English, is ongoing all the way through up to me and continually moving in the present. Has perfected and remain perfected. And then the next verb. Who? That is those who are being sanctified. Present tense. Meaning, it's right now, as he's writing it, or as we're hearing it, present ongoing action. Something's happening. What? We are being sanctified. This verse is saying all of those who, who have been united to Christ are those who to one degree or another are in this progression, this battle of saving faith, of sanctification, of, of hating their sin, a life of repentance and worship and joy and repentance. And those are them. And who are they? He says, that's what's happening here. And he says, that's how you know that you have been perfected. That is before the eyes of God. All your sins have been washed away. There's no guilt there with, with the Father's eyes, with God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit towards you, even now. Not because you did something for that, but because His Son propitiated them. And more than that, His Son, in true humanity, lived in perfect obedience to God and His law on your behalf. And so we cry like the Apostle Paul, I seek a righteousness a perfection, not of my own, that comes from my obedience to God's law. No, no, no. But to that which is a gift to me from God, the righteousness of His Son, put to my account. And the Hebrew writer fully agrees. Oh, that's what He did. He perfected for all time. Those of you who love Jesus and are waiting His calling and are being sanctified. And thus you are to know. You are to know. It's a gift to his children to know that's what really happened in the atonement of Christ. He will have no dropouts. So, well, how do you apply this?
Gosh, I pray that the application has been happening already. Worship. And if I were to say something as a pastor, see, here it is. Here's your application. What you heard, know it. Believe it. Commune with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit ongoingly over it. After making purification of sins, Jesus, having been raised, ascended, sat down at the right hand of the majesty If you love Jesus, if you believe in Him, know that He did not just give you an opportunity to be saved if you could change your own darkened, sinful heart. He came. And He turned the light on. And you awakened with the hearing of the Gospel to eternal salvation. He saved you once and for all by the sacrifice of himself. Oh, let's close this worship service by singing our hearts out to our great Savior, to that wonderful atonement on behalf of us who believe. Father, thank you. For your word. We thank you for the depth of your word. We thank you for all the contours of your holy written word. We're a desperate people to constantly think and believe according to your word. And it is even that thinking, that believing, that preaching, that hearing. That is our sanctification. And it is what your son has purchased for us. And we are utterly grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.